welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Nicole Beisel, and I'm a medical student here at the Medical College of Georgia. Today, I am joined by Dr. Rebecca Yang, who is a general pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Thanks. It's great to be here. Today, we will be discussing the risk, evaluation, and management of lead toxicity in children. We are also joined by Dr. Tyrone Bristol, who was previously a clinical professor of pediatrics at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine in Chapel Hill. He is currently here in Augusta, completing a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at the Medical College of Georgia. Dr. Bristol also previously served as the medical director of the Lead Poisoning Prevention Resource Center in upstate New York, which covered about 25 counties. So he brings a wealth of experience and insight into this topic. Welcome, Dr. Bristol. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. On today's episode, we will be discussing why lead toxicity continues to be an issue today, discuss sources of how humans are exposed to lead, review risk factors and consequences of lead toxicity, and finally discuss screening, management, and treating for children with lead toxicity. The federal government in the United States banned the use of lead-based paint in residential structures and environments in the 1970s due to recognition of the potential adverse consequences of toxicity from lead exposure. So why are we talking about lead toxicity today? Good question. Despite efforts at minimizing pediatric lead exposure in the United States, an estimated 535,000 preschool-aged children have blood lead levels high enough to warrant medical management. The effects of lead on pediatric neurodevelopment is striking. One study had an estimated loss of 23 million IQ points among a six-year cohort of contemporary American children. That's right. Childhood lead exposure costs the U.S. a staggering $50 billion every year. So in an estimated 37 million homes in this country that still contain lead-based paint, the battle against pediatric lead toxicity is far from over. Nika, why don't you start off our discussion with a clinical case? Sure thing. A four-year-old male presents to his pediatrician for a well-child examination. He has not been seen in your clinic since he was two years old because the family was living in another state for the last couple of years. He is behind on his immunizations. His mother is worried that he frequently complains of abdominal pain and is constipated. Mom is also concerned that he likes to eat paper and dirt. Due to concerns of pica, you order labs, which is positive for hypochromic microcytic anemia with a hemoglobin of 7.5 grams per deciliter. The liver and kidney function are normal. Capillary sample shows a lead level of 10 micrograms per deciliter, which is later confirmed by a venous sample. So Dr. Yang, what level of lead is not safe for children? Great question. There is actually no level of lead in the blood that is considered safe for children. But we do have a reference range defined by the CDC for guidance. A blood lead level that requires intervention is any level that is greater than or equal to 5 micrograms per deciliter. So what types of symptoms are associated with lead toxicity? Well, the early symptoms of acute lead poisoning in children may not be so obvious. Symptoms could be episodic and nonspecific, such as poor appetite, decreased activity, irritability, and these symptoms may not be as obvious in infants or younger children. Rising blood levels may present with relatively nonspecific symptoms, such as headaches, constipation, or abdominal pain. Chronic exposure can lead to cognitive impairment, behavior problems like ADHD, and even hearing and balance issues. However, some children with severely elevated lead levels may remain completely asymptomatic. So true. It can be hard to tease out lead exposure, but there are clues in a clinical history that can help steer you in the right direction. 
For example, in the case that Nika just described, the mom is concerned about the child eating paper and dirt. The medical term for this is pica, and pica is an eating disorder that involves consuming items that are typically not thought of as food and that do not contain any significant nutritional value. This can be items like hair, dirt, and paint chips. So, pica puts a child at risk of lead toxicity because they may be eating items with lead. Nika, to help us narrow our differential diagnosis, we need to explore this child's environment. Tell me more. Sure. So the child has been living between rural Georgia and New York City for the past two years. While in Georgia, his home is supplied by well water. In New York, he was living in an apartment building that mom states has lots of old paint peeling from the walls. So let's talk about where lead is normally found. Lead is a metal occurring naturally in the Earth's crust and is released into the environment by burning fossil fuels, mining, and manufacturing. It is also used as a component for many manufactured goods. This includes everyday items such as batteries, ammunition, red and yellow coloring, and plastics. Before 1978, in the United States, paints actually contained lead. Although since banned, many older homes in the U.S. are still coated with lead-based paint. And this continues to be a major source of lead exposure in children. But let's not forget that lead can also be found in many other places, including old ceramic or pewter cookware, urns, cosmetics, imported toys, piping, dust, soil, and even drinking water. And I'd like to share a story um, of one of um, my patients. This was a child who was otherwise healthy, had his one-year-old lead screening done, and we'll talk later about screening, and the lead level came back incredibly elevated. It's one of the highest lead levels I'd ever seen. And when the Department of Health went to do the investigation, this was a family that had a brand new home. Their careers were not associated with lead. There was was a big mystery, and they discovered that the brand-new blinds in, in their brand new home actually were imported and had been did with lead. And the When the blinds were open and closed repeatedly, it was showering lead dust, and the child was inhaling uh, the lead. And he actually got admitted and got chelation, which we'll talk about treatment later. But that's a great example of a child whose lead poisoning we would not have known if we had not done uh, this routine testing. Wow, that's a really great story. Um, So, you know, lead paints, in addition to dust and soil containing lead, are the top sources for lead exposure for children in the U.S., And the principal root of um, pediatric lead poisoning occurs mainly by ingestion. Which makes sense, since younger kids are always putting everything in their mouths. Exactly. In fact, blood levels potentially rise from 6 months to 12 months of age, and they potentially peak around 18 to 36 months of age, which coincides with the normal child developmental abilities of increasing mobility and more hand-to-mouth behavior. Other potential exposures include inhalation and maternal to fetal transfer, as lead does cross the placenta. The U.S. EPA estimates that 20% of lead exposure comes from drinking lead-tainted water. That reminds me of the famous case in 2014 in Flint, Michigan. Oh, that's right. What a great public health story. Nika, tell us more about the Flint case. Sure. The city of Flint suffered a water crisis when the city switched its drinking water supply from Detroit's system to the Flint River in a cost-saving move. As Flint River water ran through the city's aging lead pipes, lead leached into the water supplying citizens' homes not only to bathe in, but also to drink. That's right. There was a pediatrician in Flint who helped to link and expose the lead poisoning from the city's water. 
During routine evaluations, she began noticing that children in the area had a greater increase in blood lead levels compared to before the change in the water supply. Yes, that pediatrician was a great example of how we can advocate for our patients. The exposure to lead in Flint resulted in a significant increase in the incidence of elevated pediatric blood lead levels from 2.4% before exposure to 4.9% after exposure, with the most heavily affected neighborhoods experiencing a 6.6% increase. The largest increase in blood lead levels was seen in a social economically disadvantaged neighborhoods, furthering inequality for children in this group. So are children more sensitive to the effects of lead toxicity? Yes, that's a great question, Nika. Like we mentioned earlier, children younger than five years of age are at the highest risk of lead poisoning because they have increased hand-to-mouth activity. But children are more sensitive to lead in the water supply due to its absorption in the gut. Fact, adults only absorb 3 to 10% of an oral dose of water-soluble lead, while children absorb 40 to 50%. The greatest risk is for infants drinking formula made from tainted tap water. Infants drinking formula made with water with lead present at 10 parts per billion have a 1 in 4 chance of exceeding the elevated blood lead level of 5 micrograms per deciliter. For children aged 1 to 5 years, every 1 part per billion increase in water lead leads to a 35% increase in blood lead levels. Wow, that's so interesting. So a small amount can make a big difference in the growing body of a child. And children who reside in older homes, particularly in low-income areas, are especially at risk. These communities are more likely to be serviced by lead pipes with poor anti-corrosion control, increasing the level of lead in drinking water. This disparity was highlighted by the Flint water crisis, but is also present in other high-poverty areas in the U.S., particularly in the Northeast. Other factors include having a sibling with lead poisoning or having a parent with work or hobby exposure to lead. For example, children of parents who spend time in plumbing, demolition, painting, building renovation, or shooting ranges are at increased risk of lead poisoning. This is due to particles that may be on the parents' clothing when they come home. Another risk is being an international immigrant or refugee. Lead-based paint continues to be used in many items around the world, so children may have been exposed prior to moving to the U.S., Imported toys might also be painted with lead-based paint, and imported ceramics may contain lead as well. Yeah, and there's another case uh, that's linked to that um, where uh, we had a child who, again, had routine lead uh, testing. This was the two-year-old, 24-month lead testing, and the level was elevated. The Department of Health went out, investigated, and tried to find the source of the lead poisoning and discovered that one of the objects, uh, they, they specifically asked about objects that he would put in his mouth. And they discovered that one of the figurines that he would put in his mouth actually was tainted with lead. And it was an imported item that the family had. And they had no idea that it was lead, lead tainted until uh, this investigation. Wow, that's really important to keep in mind. So we mentioned that the blood lead levels greater than or equal to 5 micrograms per deciliter of lead requires intervention. But what levels would we expect the child to be symptomatic? That's that's a good question. First of all, we should know that lead is a potent, irreversible neurotoxin. Symptoms of lead toxicity in children varies with the blood lead level. Lead affects virtually every organ system, with the central nervous system being particularly vulnerable because of lead's ability to cross the blood-brain barrier. That's right. Going back to basic pathophysiology, remember that lead can be substituted for calcium ions. This means that it can gain passage across the blood-brain barrier. 
Once inside the brain, lead can deposit in the prefrontal cortex, hippocampus, and cerebellum. This can potentially cause a variety of symptoms ranging from cognitive impairment to behavioral issues to even nerve damage. Lead can also masquerade as calcium on the cellular level by disrupting important cell signaling cascades and even alter gene transcription. And all of these side effects of lead toxicity can interfere with normal growth and development in children, potentially causing those affected fall behind their healthy peers. So what symptoms should we be aware of that would indicate lead exposure? So symptomatic pediatric lead poisoning is actually rare. Correct. Fortunately, uh, lead encephalopathy has almost disappeared from the U.S. since the removal of lead from gasoline and paint. Unfortunately, this also means that unless children are screened for lead toxicity, their families may not even realize there's a problem as children are initially asymptomatic. Children with blood lead levels even below 5 have higher rates of developing behavior disorders such as ADHD and also lower academic capabilities. American Academy of Pediatrics reports that 1 in 5 diagnoses of ADHD can be attributed to lead exposure. Lead poisoning can also lead to hearing loss, peripheral neuropathy, and decreased nerve conduction velocity. Lead nephropathy is a potential complication of prolonged high-level lead exposure. And there's even something called lead colic, which includes sporadic vomiting, intermittent abdominal pain, and constipation. What kind of presentation would a child have with higher or even toxic levels of lead? So a poisoning with very high lead levels of lead leading to blood Lead levels nearing 100 can lead to acute onset dramatic symptoms such as encephalopathy, seizures, protracted vomiting, and death. It should be noted that these these symptoms are much more likely in an adult with lead poisoning. These cases are considered an emergency and medical intervention should be sought immediately since symptoms decrease in severity as blood lead levels decreases. So how is lead toxicity prevented? Lead poisoning is a less commonly encountered condition and may often go unrecognized due to nonspecific symptoms. Yeah, it's really important to remember that many children will initially be asymptomatic with low-level lead exposure, and the long-term neurodevelopmental consequences may become evident later in childhood through adolescence. So since symptoms of lead poisoning may be delayed in presentation, screening is an important tool in the prevention of adverse effects of lead. General pediatricians can offer point-of-care screening by using a finger prick sample to detect capillary lead levels. The CDC and AAP no longer recommend universal lead screening except for in high-prevalence areas, but risk of exposure to lead should be determined for all children. When should we screen for lead toxicity? So the AAP recommends a risk assessment for lead exposure starting at 6 months old, 9 months, 12 months, 18, and 24 months, and then at 3, 4, 5, and 6 years old. For any children who test positive on a risk assessment, a lead level should be drawn. Additionally, all children on Medicaid must be screened for lead toxicity at ages 1-year-old and 2-years-old, regardless of the risk of lead exposure. Clinicians may also choose to screen other high-risk children, including those with anemia, growth delay, speech and language issues, or behavioral disorders. Elevated capillary lead levels can then be confirmed by venous blood draws for the diagnosis of lead toxicity, as capillary tests can result in false positives. The higher the blood lead level on the screening test, the more urgent the need for confirmatory testing. Hair and urine lead levels do not give an accurate estimate of blood lead level and therefore should not be used for screening. 
Searching for gingival lead lines and x-ray fluorescence of long bones are also not recommended for the diagnosis of lead toxicity. In addition, children who are refugees, recent immigrants, and those who are adopted should also be screened regardless of their age. Infants with mothers with blood lead levels over 5 should also be followed closely. The CDC recommends that mothers with blood lead levels greater than or equal to 40 micrograms per deciliter are encouraged to pump and discard their milk until their blood lead level drops below 40. So back to our patient. If his blood lead level is confirmed by venous draw to be greater than 5 micrograms per deciliter, now what? So the CDC provides helpful recommendations for further evaluation and follow-up on children with elevated blood lead levels. We will provide a link in our show notes for reference. Treatment is then stratified based on venous blood lead level. For children with a blood lead level of 20 to 44, chelation therapy will decrease blood lead levels, but it has not been proven to prevent the adverse neurodevelopmental effects of lead poisoning and therefore is not recommended solely as treatment. Those with blood lead levels greater than 45, chelation therapy is then indicated once exposure has been identified and controlled. And then for children with blood lead levels greater than 70, the child should be hospitalized with chelation therapy in conjunction with consultation with a medical toxicologist or a pediatric environmental health specialty unit. Nika, could you describe to the listeners what chelation therapy actually involves? Sure. So chelation therapy works by binding to the lead in the blood and soft tissues, creating a compound that can be excreted in the bile and urine. The chelation agents succimer and penicillamine are given orally and recommended for levels between 45 and 70. Dimercaprol or ethylenediamine tetraacetic acid, also known as EDTA, can be administered parenterally and recommended for levels greater than 70. Great job explaining that, Nika. What else can be done to decrease the risk and effects of lead poisoning? So a major part of treatment of lead poisoning is simply to remove the source of the contamination. It is important to begin gathering a history of possible environmental exposure and potential investigation of the home to identify potential sources of lead. Pediatricians can enlist the help of public health officials who should evaluate the child's residence and environment for potential sources of exposure. This investigation should also include other places that the child spends time like a daycare or a grandparent's or babysitter's. Once potential sources have been removed, repeat lead levels should be formed until less than 5 micrograms per deciliter. How frequently should these levels be checked? So that depends on how high the lead level is and how quickly the levels are declining. Check out the CDC website for specific recommendations. As children grow, the blood lead level should decrease if exposure has been properly mitigated. However, levels that are stable or increasing should raise a red flag for inadequate source control. So children with prolonged exposure will often take longer for blood lead levels to decrease, as lead stores in the bone may be greater. What other potential consequences of lead toxicity should pediatricians be aware of? Nutritional inadequacies can increase lead absorption, so children with lead exposure should also be treated for concurrent nutritional deficiency. Iron deficiency is of particular concern, and these children should be treated with increased dietary and supplemental iron, calcium, and zinc. Nika, why does having a blood lead level increase the risk of iron deficiency? Well, when iron stores are low, the body attempts to correct the deficit by absorbing more iron from the gastrointestinal tract. The transporter that absorbs iron also absorbs lead. This results in greater amounts of absorption of ingested lead, which leads to a four to five fold increase in baseline risk of lead toxicity. Great job, Nika. What else can be done to decrease the risks of lead poisoning? 
For families with elevated lead in their drinking water, like those affected in Flint, Michigan, certain measures can be taken to decrease childhood exposure. For example, flushing water pipes for two minutes prior to drinking or preparing baby formula can decrease the amount of lead present in the water sample in most cases. Using only cold tap water and filling a pitcher with cold water after two minutes of running the faucet can also help decrease exposure. Water that comes out of the tap warm or hot can also have higher levels of lead, so boiling this water will not reduce the amount of lead in your water. What a great discussion today. Let's summarize what we've discussed. Lead exposure and toxicity is still a major issue in the U.S., especially in low-income populations. Children under six years old are particularly at risk for long-term adverse behavioral and neurodevelopmental consequences as a result of lead toxicity, which the CDC currently defines as a blood lead level of five micrograms per deciliter or greater. Yes, uh, risk of lead exposure should be assessed in all children six months to six years old with high-risk groups and all Medicaid-eligible children being screened using capillary blood lead measurements. Management should occur based on local and state health department protocols and should be focused on removal of the source of lead exposure. And children will require close developmental follow-up for years after exposure. Overall, the pediatrician must continue to advocate for those affected by lead poisoning as primary prevention is the key to curing this disease. Thanks for our discussion today, Dr. Bristol and Dr. Yang. Thanks for having me. Yes, it was a pleasure. An additional thanks to Dr. Jacob Eichenberger and Dr. Alice Little-Caldwell, who peer-review the content of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented here are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Free CME credit is available for today's episode. Follow the link in our description and on our website. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. 